Welcome to Copyright Clearances Podcast Series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, January 11th, 2019. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer. He joins me today from PW's editorial offices in New York City. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So when we returned to podcasting last week after a two-week holiday break, you reported on some of the holiday sales trends for publishers, but you didn't yet have the hard numbers. And this week, we did get some numbers. So how did publishers fare over the holidays? Sure. So, you know, there, there's actually some good news in the year-end numbers. Uh, overall, print book sales rose 1.3% for the year 2018 over 2017. And that's according to the data reported to NPD BookScan, which tracks about 80 to 85% of print sales. Uh, and this continues an upward trend for print that now stretches back to 2013. So a pretty good stretch for print books here. But again, it's worth pointing out some of the trends that we touched on last week. And that's mainly that the growth in print was driven by adult and nonfiction with political books just piling up huge sales over the last year. Most notably, Michelle Obama's Becoming, which has sold, we now know, a stunning 3.4 million copies at the outlets that report to BookScan, uh, and that's just in two months since this publication in November. And overall, 2018 saw five books top more than a million print copies, and all of those books were frontlist titles. And you can contrast that to 2017, when the top-selling print books were Wonder by R.J. Palacio and Milk and Honey by Rupi Kaur. Now, the bad news, uh, we've talked about it a bit on this program in the past, is that adult fiction fell 4.6% in 2018. And that really raises some questions for publishers about what the future holds. Are fiction sales going to tick back up once we no longer have uh, Trump in office? Or are sales going to dip once Trump leaves office? Because Trump's not going to be around forever, please, right? I mean, tell me that's true. <laughs> well, we can't tell you that Barnes & Noble also released their holiday sales figures, and we're wondering what the story uh, was there. Well, kind of mixed. You know, as our listeners will, will remember, Barnes & Noble executives had repeatedly promised toward the end of last year that comp store sales in the 2018 holiday shopping season were going to beat 2017. And the good news is... They did. You know, in results announced yesterday, Barnes & Noble reported the same store sales increased 4% between Black Friday and New Year's Day. And that's the best comp store performance for the company in many years. But the sales did come with a cost. Barnes & Noble offered a really hefty promotion this year, and that included big ad buys and discounts on top titles. And those expenses are expected to reduce their full-year earning guidance by as much as 10%. And that kind of sent the stock tumbling initially. But, you know, not necessarily a bad thing, in my view, anyway, because I think Barnes & Noble's big challenge this holiday season was just to get people back into their stores, and they succeeded. As it turns out, though, Andrew, not only B&N shares are dropping, this week the Authors Guild released results of a survey that showed authors' incomes have fallen a hefty 42% since 2009. Guild officials say this year's survey is the largest of its kind of writing-related earnings and that the data reveal a crisis of epic proportions for American authors. But does it? It seems on the Internet uh, some people aren't so sure. Yeah, and you can count me one of those people who really aren't so sure. You know, are, are things tougher for writers than ever? 
Maybe. I mean, the Guild reports that the median income for U.S. authors is now a, a measly $6,080, which, of course, is not a livable wage by any stretch. But then again, you know, when have writers ever had a livable wage just from writing? The fact is, it's a pretty small club, those that do. And it's funny, in the New York Times piece, the Authors Guild Executive Director Mary Rasenberger suggested that in the mid-19th century, late 19th century, writers could make a good middle-class living by just writing. And she cited John Cheever and William Faulkner and Ernest Hemingway. Of course, you know, those were some pretty great writers. Two of them are Nobel Prize winners. And, and never mind that there was no internet and that copyright was just 28 years plus renewal during this golden age of middle-class writerly living. But to the point in whether or not it's harder to be a writer these days, I think we can all agree that it's certainly different. And in just a few short digital decades, the way information is now traded and bought and sold, that's changed dramatically. You know, whether or not it's harder is one thing, but for sure it's different. And the Guild survey certainly points out a host of challenges that are facing writers in this digital age that simply are unprecedented. Indeed, uh, Publishers Weekly has a look at the issues raised in a piece that's coming in Monday's edition. What are some of the reactions that you've seen and heard? Yeah, so I think one of the best takes comes from best-selling author John Scalzi on his Whatever blog. He really very thoughtfully parses the survey, which expanded its reach greatly this year from just Guild members previously to over 5,000 writers across more than 14 or so different organizations. All of these writers were self-selected, right? They they chose to participate in the survey, uh, and these now include self-published authors. So, you know, as, as Scalzi notes, that doesn't make the data this year necessarily bad or wrong. It's not like comparing apples to oranges, comparing this year's survey to previous surveys. But as Scalzi observes, it's a little like comparing a Honeycrisp apple to a Red Delicious apple. And I'll just build on that a little bit and note that Red Delicious apples are an abomination of nature. They're terrible. Don't eat them. But Scalzi also contrasted data from the Authors Guild with the latest stats from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And the BLS reports that the 2017 median income for the category of writers and authors was actually 61820 which looks pretty good. And also, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that those incomes are projected to rise. You can count the people at Forbes as, as also being skeptical of the Guild's contention that it's harder to write these days. And they even include a, a comment from blogger and consultant Jane Friedman in their piece, who says that she, too, is not convinced that author incomes are on the decline on the whole. And the New York Times, of course, in its in its piece, used the survey to question whether it pays to be a writer these days. And they note that writing for magazines and newspapers was once a solid source of additional income for professional writers, but that the decline in freelance journalism pay has meant less opportunity for authors to write for pay. Of course, they conveniently don't note that the New York Times and the Tassini case had a big role <laughs> in how that all went down. But I think the biggest question regarding the Authors Guild survey is now how that data is going to be used in the policy work, and more specifically, how the Guild is going to use that data in its policy work. And in an accompanying press release, Guild officials note that they take the survey data to highlight some very real issues facing writers, like most prominently Amazon's growing power over traditional and self-publishing, also the downward pressure on book and ebook royalties. But they also point the finger in some really puzzling directions, including at libraries, universities, and indie booksellers. And I have to say, I'm a little concerned about where the Authors Guild goes with this next. When CCC's Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese reports on how the Authors Guild hopes to take on the dilemma of declining dollars for their members. I'm Christopher Keneally. 
I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly and host of the new PW podcast, Publishers Weekly Insider. Each week, we'll talk to PW editors, authors, and other industry guests about the biggest and most exciting stories and books in the world of publishing. New episodes of PW Insider premiere every Friday. So listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwinsider or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, January 11th, 2019, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me today as he does each week with the latest news from the world of publishing. And as we noted before the break, Andrew, the Authors Guild in the U.S. released a survey showing a decline in authors' incomes over the last decade. In fact, a decline by nearly a half. You said you were concerned by how the Guild might use this data in its own policy work. Why would you be concerned? Let's raise red flags for you. Sure. So first off, you know, the Guild included a number of issues and proposed a number of policy initiatives in, in its press materials. And I think many of them are on the mark. You know, let me start by saying that. For example, I think they correctly point out that the growing influence of Amazon is something to be watched, something to be dealt with, uh, especially for self-published authors. And, you know, the idea that a self-published author with Amazon is that the terms of service are not negotiable, I think is a problem. I've spoken about that on a few occasions on this podcast uh, and that the Guild wants to advocate for authors to collectively bargain with Amazon, I think that's a great idea. And they also point out that ebook royalties are too low. Agreed on that as well. I think that's also an issue. But in its highlighted proposals, that the Guild highlighted just, I think, four, a handful of policy recommendations, they went back to the 80s. They kind of went back to the future here. And they proposed the establishment of a federally funded public lending right regime for U.S. libraries. Now, that's akin to the right that exists in the U.K. and in some European countries. Now, our listeners may know that a public lending rights scheme pays authors a small fee for library lends, and it really is quite a small fee. You know, but that idea never gained traction, despite the fact that, again, in the 1980s, the Guild pushed pretty hard for this. It just never went anywhere in the U.S., and for good reason, I think. It's not a very good idea. Uh, and in a post over at Boing Boing, bestselling author Cory Doctorow also picked up on this and offered his take noting that, you know, if we're going to fund authorship through state grants, through federal funds, you know, let's focus on breaking up the monopolists here, make them pay their fair share of taxes, and then fund the NEA and other institutions. Uh, he adds that librarians and indie booksellers are actually authors' best allies. They're class allies to authors, as are university professors. Uh, and personally, I think he's right. A public lending right in the U.S., would disproportionately reward authors who are already doing pretty well. Those are the most popular best-selling authors. And trust me, you know, James Patterson doesn't need government money to go on top of the royalties he's earning. So if we really are going to be able to pry federal dollars away to subsidize authors, I agree with Corey. I think we should do it through a program that supports the authors that even the Guild survey points out are struggling the most. And as you write today, Andrew, the Guild also took another shot at libraries this week. Uh, you think we're seeing authors picking an unnecessary fight? I think probably. I mean, is there a legal issue here that the Authors Guild is working at? And I think, yes, there probably is. But, you know, 
Well, let's back up and we'll talk about that a little bit because it was interesting timing indeed that this week the Authors Guild did indeed take another swing at the library community by launching a petition against what's known as controlled digital lending. Now, that's a service by which some libraries and nonprofits, most prominently the Internet Archive through its Open Library Project, are taking copies of books that have been legally acquired, so a print book that they've legally acquired, they're uh, scanning that book, then removing the print copy from circulation and sealing it like in a shipping container. And then they're lending the digital copy in place of the print book on a one copy, one user model. So that it essentially functions just like a print book, except in a digital realm, uh, in a PDF edition. Now, if you haven't heard of controlled digital lending, it's because it's not a big program and it's really not a big deal yet. And it is certainly not hurting authors' incomes at this point. We're talking about, and you can go on the open library and sign up and take a look at some of these, they're really kind of crappy yellow paged PDFs. And these are really no competition for a real ebook. Uh, and in most cases, these are books that are not available in digital form or orphan works or books that libraries have had on their shelves that they want to remove, but still be able to offer them. But the Guild sees this program as kind of a looming threat. And they write that you know, if it was to expand, it would eventually decimate the market for library ebooks and put a massive dent in the ebook market in general and undermine authors' rights to bring their older works back into the market. Now, maybe that's true, maybe not. I think that's a real stretch. And, and as I said before, is there a legal issue to be parsed here? Well, yeah, I think almost certainly so, and especially since the Redigi case. Now, we talked about the Redigi case a few weeks ago. Uh, basically, uh, an appeals court upheld that a service that enabled the resale of digital items was basically not fair use. It, it shut down the service called Redigi that sold, resold, I should say, iTunes files. But there's a couple of different ways that libraries operate here, and you know, it's not worth getting in the weeds in, but put it this way. An iTunes file that you buy and then resell competes with a brand new iTunes file. But these crappy yellow PDF scans are not going to destroy the digital book market. They really can't compete with the new ebook. And mostly these are not of books that are, you know, they're not being put back into the stream of commerce, right? They're, they're being lent one user at a time to people who basically can't find these books anywhere else. But that's not the real issue I have here. You know, the real issue I have here is that there seems to be another wave of animosity from the Authors Guild emerging toward libraries. And that concerns me. Uh, it concerns me that the Authors Guild is still kind of conflating the decline of median author incomes with the work of libraries who spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year buying books and you know millions more promoting authors of all kinds. And it suggests to me that guild leadership is still kind of suffering from the kind of thinking that led them into two costly ill-conceived lawsuits over Google scanning about a print books, which of course helped authors and didn't really hurt authors. So I would hope that this is, uh, th that that whole legal episode is one that the Authors Guild is not eager to repeat. But I wonder, I wonder if we're about to see the legal tensions between libraries and authors heat up again. We will find out. And when it happens, Andrew Albanese will bring it to us. Andrew Albanese publishes weekly senior writer. Thanks for joining me today and every Friday on Beyond the Book. 
My pleasure, as always. Coming next on CCC's Beyond the Book, since 2016, the MIT Sloan Management Review has used its frontier section to explore the organizational issues of our time, from the rise of the robots to the surprising ways that humans remain more powerful than any technology. Recently, MIT Sloan Management Review and MIT Press inaugurated two book series that will advance the digital transformation conversation in important new directions. Paul Michaelman is editor-in-chief at MIT Sloan Management Review, as well as for the two lines of books. His role puts him at the center of the digital discussion. From the dawn of the, of the web, perhaps, maybe not the internet, publishing has, has been disrupted from all corners. In many respects, the democratization of ideas is a really wonderful thing. You have more people from more diverse points of view contributing to the world's body of knowledge. But of course, and, and you know, all publishers recognize this, it also creates a huge problem for the consumer of ideas. How do you determine what ideas are credible and what are not? What are the guideposts or the signposts available to you to figure out what you should be spending your time on. We think that our role um, has never been more important in that respect, that especially with a brand like MIT and MIT Sloan, right, we have a hugely important role to play in helping people figure out which ideas are worth spending time on and which are worth spending less time on. But at the same time, the business we're in is really tough. Traditional sources of revenue um, are drying up. We're always having to reinvent the business in order to, to fulfill our mission, which is to continue to help people to improve the practice of business. So we're right in the middle of it. Managing in the Technology Storm, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center. Our co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. Subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The complete Beyond the Book podcast archive is available at beyondthebook.com. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening and join us again soon on CCC's Beyond the Book.